Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. It's hard to believe that next summer, the Summer Olympics will return again to Tokyo, Japan for the 2020 Summer Olympics. The first iteration of the Olympic Games actually took place in 776 B.C. until 393 A.D. in the ancient city of Olympia, which is in southwestern Greece. The first iteration of the Olympic Games were created as a religious festival that worshipped Zeus, king of the Greek gods. The main event was not any particular sport, but rather a gigantic burnt offering of 100 oxen given to Zeus on the third day of the festival. And it was five days long, so the middle day. In those early years, messengers would be sent out every four years to announce a sacred truce across the land. Most of the world at that time existed around the Mediterranean Sea. Well, uh, Greece would send out messengers calling for a truce in preparation for the Olympic Games. So any wars that were going on were put on hold. Any conflicts were put on hold. And travelers and athletes were granted safe passage across territories so that everybody in the world at the time could participate in the games. Approximately 40 to 50,000 people would descend on Olympia from from all over the Mediterranean world to compete and watch this five-day event. Athletes competed in events such as chariot racing, running, boxing, mixed martial arts, wrestling, javelin, and discus, and a few others. Winners were not given medals, as we're used to seeing, uh, but instead they were given wreaths made out of olive branches picked from the trees that populated the hills around Mount Olympia. Olive trees were quite common there. And they were not as common other places in the world. So it was special to get a wreath made of olive branches from that part of the world. And then, of course, the winners would return to their hometown as heroes and receive a hero's welcome. It is these very Olympic games that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote the verses we're going to look at today. We're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians called Outrageous Joy. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Let's get every Bible out and have every heart open and see what God wants to say to us through His inspired Word. Our theme verse for this series has been Philippians 4.4. Let's say it out loud together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Many of you know, as well as I do, that it is difficult to rejoice in the Lord when we are exhausted from living the Christian life. 
It's also difficult if we think that we've reached the finish line of a race that's not yet finished. Thus, our big idea for today is this. The Christian life is a race you can win so long as you finish. In fact, that is the win. Finishing. The Christian life is a race you can win so long as you finish. Philippians, you might recall, is primarily a warm thank you letter for financial support that the church there in the city of Philippi had sent the Apostle Paul while he was planting churches abroad. As the Apostle sat in Rome under house arrest for preaching the gospel, he wanted to use his pen to dispense some helpful instructions to this special church. It was near and dear to his heart. They needed help with some issues such as joylessness, division, unresolved conflict, pride, and disunity. They also were apathetic in their faith, and so he wanted to light a fire underneath them to get them going again. In chapter 3, verses 12 to 21, Paul needed to encourage some of his readers who were spiritually weary, and he needed to motivate some of his other readers that were in Philippi who had become spiritually lazy. And so we pick up the text in chapter 3, verse 12. Please follow along with me as I read. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it, reveal that also to you. Excuse me. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, Paul, in these verses that we're going to look at today, it's verses 12 to 21, he uses three metaphors, three metaphors to urge the Philippians to run the race set before them. The first metaphor is that of an athlete. And the first point on your outline is this, running to win requires training like an athlete. Running to win requires training like an athlete. It's very, it's very important that we interpret Scripture in its context. Uh, one of the many errors, or excuse me, one of the most common errors that people do when they're reading the Scriptures is they extract verses or even passages from their context, which then causes them to be misinterpreted or to miss the meaning. Well, one part of the context that's really important when we look at verses 12 to 21 is understanding what Paul had just finished talking about in verses 1 through 11. Last week, we watched the apostle lay out his impressive religious resume to the Philippians, and then he rips it to shreds. 
as a sinner saved by grace, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul now views his previous life before Christ as rubbish, he says. It's not worth anything compared to the surpassing value of personally knowing Jesus. This was significant because some of the Philippians were being duped into trying to earn their salvation by a group called the Judaizers, who, you might remember, said, you need Jesus plus circumcision and some dietary laws from the Old Testament to be saved. Or, in other words, the translation would be, Jesus isn't enough. And so Paul addresses this in verses 1 through 11, and he says then, back in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, to his readers, work out your salvation. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But then he also mentions that the Lord will help them grow as they put forth effort. So it sets up a question. If they're not supposed to work to earn their salvation and they've been saved by grace, how do they work out their salvation? So, so this tension's kind of built in the letter where, where Paul is he's kind of getting ahead of this question that they must have been thinking about. And so the answer here is in chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. He tries to steer them down the right theological road, and he gives them a couple ditches to avoid. The first here is on uh, your outline, letter A. The first ditch he tells them to avoid is watch out for the pride of perfectionism. Watch out for the pride of perfectionism. So Philippians, as you're running, as you're, as you're running your race with the Lord, and you're headed down the road, be careful there's a ditch on one side called perfectionism. Not Notice, in, look in verse 12 in your Bible. He says, not that I am already perfect. He's referencing what he just talked about in the previous section as his goal. And that was, he says, I want to know Christ Jesus intimately. And then, and then he says in chapter 3, verse 10, I want to become like him. In other words, he's saying, I'm still running my race. I'm not done yet, Philippians. And just because I'm under house arrest and I'm nearing the end of my public ministry, it doesn't mean I know everything about Christ or I have completely become like him. And so he, he kind of shows humility, but then also tears down any uh, notion that the Philippians might have him on the pedestal. In fact, he even elaborates further in verse 13. Look at the first half of verse 13. He says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Even Christ has made me his own. I, I still haven't attained what I'm striving for yet. So he reinforces what he said in verse 12 as if he can already hear the objection the Philippians would have been voicing. Come on, Paul. Really? Like, like, you, 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 don't, you, you still don't have enough of Jesus? Come on, man. You're, you're the man. You're the, you're the mega church planter. I mean, you're the one the Holy Spirit uses to write all these letters that are going to eventually become the New Testament and then become the most published book of all time. No, they probably didn't know that. But, 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 but they're going, really, Paul? Come on. But the first half of verse 13 is him reiterating his point. Really? I'm serious, guys. 
I still want to know Jesus better. And I'm not done growing yet. That's what he's trying to tell them. And of course, it raises the logical question. If Paul can say that, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we, regardless of our age, regardless of our education, or how many Bible verses we can quote, shouldn't we be able to say, I still don't know Jesus as well as I want to. And I'm not done growing yet. Most of us were not raised in a Jewish home and groomed to be a Pharisee like Paul was. So, so how might the 21st century Gentile believers struggle with perfectionism? Well, I think you know you've fallen victim to this roadside hazard if you get angry at or punish yourself for being less than perfect. Or if you punish yourself or get angry at yourself for making a mistake, sometimes it manifests itself in when somebody who struggles with this kind of perfectionism, they, they make a mistake or they, they mess up, they sin, they call themselves names. Or they hit themselves, or in some extreme cases, maybe cutting. You see, it's, it's, it's a theological issue. It's them expecting to be like God instead of seeing themselves the way the Lord sees them, as fallen, frail, imperfect, made from dust. And if they're born again, covered by grace. Another sign that perfectionism has tripped you up in your race is feeling exhausted from living the Christian life. This is a symptom that can develop when you try to run your race in your own strength or you set expectations on yourself that the Lord himself doesn't have for you. That can wear you out. Next, Paul warns them of another ditch on the other side of the road. Letter B, watch out, though, for the plague of passivity. Watch out for the plague of passivity. You, you could struggle and fall into perfectionism, but don't try to avoid, and to use the driver's education term, don't oversteer and fall into passivity. Notice in the second half of verse 12 and 13, how Paul says in verse at the end of well, the latter half of verse 12, I press on to make it my own. Press comes from a Greek word which means to run quickly towards a goal. So he's saying Jesus is his clear objective, and he is moving at a top priority with urgency totally focused on getting to Jesus. And he was able to say, to press on by, in the latter half of verse 13, by forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now this, this verse is often used as a, shall I say, a motivational quote poster. 
It's, it's a popular verse to extract from its context and use for, uh, how should I say, pop culture, motivational speakers. But here's what Paul really means here and what he's saying. And that is, in, in verse 13, by forgetting what lies behind, he's saying he chose to forget his previous life before Christ when he was a religious zealot trying to earn his salvation trying to please God on his own, he's forgetting that. He, he's choosing also, though, not to rest on the laurels of his ministry accomplishments either. So, so Paul, of any, as, I mean, anybody, Paul could have said, you know, I think I kind of want to just uh, chill on cruise control a little bit. I've kind of been working too hard on my sanctification you know, Lord, I have planted quite a few churches, and I've written about half the New Testament. I think it's okay maybe if I take a breather. No, no, no. He, he's, he's not even resting on his post-Christian or coming to conversion uh, accomplishments. He's not doing that either. He's living his life as though he still hasn't done anything for Jesus yet. His life before Christ that he was ashamed of wasn't going to paralyze him. And what he had accomplished in fruitful ministry wasn't going to satisfy him. (laughs) You know what's interesting? When I hear some Christians talk about, you know, when I get to heaven, I can't wait to meet so-and-so. It would be awesome. I can't think of anybody who's ever said, I can't wait to meet the Apostle Paul. And I think that's because he intimidates most of us. The guy's so intense, he's got this fire in him. I hear a lot of people say, I'd love to meet Jesus and Abraham and Moses and King David. I don't hear anybody say, I can't wait to meet Paul and get rebuked by him. It's going to be awesome, man, you know. <laughs> Have him tell me what took me so long to get here, you know. or <laughs> just He's so intense of a guy and so passionate for the Lord. Next he says, I strain forward to what lies ahead. The word he uses in the original text here in the latter half of verse 13, it means to exert oneself to the uttermost. So he's figuratively in a full-on sprint towards Jesus and becoming more like him. Like there is nothing that's going to get in his way. Just as a driver keeps his eyes on the road ahead while glancing at his rearview mirror, we should strain towards what Jesus has next for us while only glancing at our past for a few reminders, maybe some encouragement or maybe some humbling. By glancing the rearview mirror, I mean, we can be reminded of God's faithfulness to us. Yeah, I think it is healthy also to glance at past failures just to keep us from getting too proud of ourselves again. But overall, what Paul is saying here, he kept his focus most of the time on what lies ahead. He wasn't looking back, resting on his ministry laurels, nor was he 
going to be shamed and guilt-ridden because he had tried to earn his salvation before Christ. Notice that in verse 15, he says, Let those who are mature think in this way. There's that key word again that we've been talking about in this series. Think comes from the Greek word phroneo. It means to understand, to think, or to direct the mind. It's one of the key words in this letter. It's one of Paul's favorite words in this letter that he uses to convey the fact that what we think, how we think, drives our emotions, which is biblical counseling and discipleship. It's counter to what the world tells us, which is, how I feel determines how I think. God's word says the exact opposite. No, 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 no. You lead your emotions by thinking biblically. And so, Paul, this is one of his key words, along with joy and rejoice, as we've seen. He's, he's using this word. In fact, he strategically embeds it in each chapter of this letter. Each chapter of Philippians contains the word phroneo, to think, or to have the same mind. The apostle likes this word. His point is that those who are spiritually mature will share the mindset that he just described. And that is, if you're mature in Christ, you will want to know Christ better and you will want to become more like him and never, ever, ever think that you're done growing. Paul says that's spiritual maturity. It also means that if you don't share Paul's mindset, you're not spiritually mature regardless of how old you are or how long you've been a Christian. And so it's gut check time. Are you on the same page as Paul? Is Jesus your first love? Are you running towards Christ every day? Do you long to be like Christ? If you do, Paul says you are maturing in your thinking. And if you do, you will finish and thus win the race set out before you. Because the Christian life is a race you can win so long as you finish. Next, let's look at verse 17. Brothers, join me in imitating me, excuse me, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory, and they, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Here's the second metaphor that Paul uses, and that is the metaphor of an apprentice. An apprentice. Number two on your outline. Running to win requires growing like an apprentice. An apprentice is a learner who submits themselves under the tutelage of a mentor. Apprentices don't do this forever because their goal is to eventually become a mentor too. 
This theme of multiplication comes up in a few places in Paul's writings. Paul knew that if older believers, regardless of age, would set an example for younger believers, the church would be able to outlive him and reach future generations with the gospel. And so the first thing that uh, an apprentice must realize, and here's letter A, is the simple truth that the church needs more examples of faith. That's, that's what I think he's trying to say here in verse 17. The church needs more examples. So, so I'll go ahead and step up, Paul's saying, and be an example so you can imitate me. And don't forget Epaphroditus and Timothy, who I talked about in chapter 2. You can imitate them as well. They're good examples. But the, he doesn't shy away from being an example. Instead, he embraces the opportunity and encourages Philippians to find others who are also running the race for Jesus. Examples inspire people. Examples give people hope. Examples are used by God to change lives. Examples leave powerful legacies. That's why being an example for those coming up behind you is a privilege, not a burden. When senior adults passionately pursue Jesus, it inspires empty nesters to do so, who are coming up right behind them. When empty nesters sell out for Jesus, it motivates couples with children to do so, as they get ready to send their kids out of the nest and enter that next chapter in their lives. And when couples with children press on towards the goal, it encourages young marrieds to do so. And when young marrieds wholeheartedly live for Jesus, it inspires college students to do so. And when college students walk with the Lord, high schoolers will decide Jesus is worth it. And then when high schoolers follow Jesus, middle schoolers maybe will decide that Jesus is cool. And when middle schoolers follow Jesus, elementary schoolers will love the Lord as well. So... No matter whether you are young or old or in between, or you think you're young, but others think you're old, it doesn't matter. The Lord can use you as an example. The next thing an apprentice must learn, according to Paul, is to not be gullible. That's letter B. Some professing Christians are enemies of the faith. They are enemies of the faith. Paul says in verse 18, For many walk as enemies of the cross. What a terrible thing to be said about someone. You are an enemy of the cross that Jesus died on to save the world. You're against it. Commentators disagree on who the apostle might be referring to, and it makes my job harder when the four to five commentaries that I like to use in this series, they're all very good commentaries, great theologians, and I looked at each one of them, and they all disagree. I'm going, well, great, what do I do now? Who's he talking about? Who are these enemies of the cross? Well, after praying and wrestling with it a little bit, here's, here's what I come up with. On one hand, he could be referring to the Judaizers that he talked about in uh, verses 1 through 11, which I talked about last week. Uh, he described them, remember, back in chapter 3, verse 2, as dogs 
evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. A few more complimentary terms. The context would support this view that he's circling back to talk about the Judaizers and saying they are enemies of the cross. Kind of makes sense because they don't think that what Jesus did on the cross is enough, that you need circumcision plus dietary laws to have salvation. On the other hand, some suggest Paul was referring to another group of false teachers besides the Judaizers. But one thing I've noticed is that the fact he wept for them that's important to note. Did you know that pastors weep for people? I do. One of the things that pastors weep over is when people thumb their nose at God or his word and blow out of the church, turn their back on the faith, or refuse counsel from the scriptures. It just breaks our hearts because we basically see them committing spiritual suicide, driving off a cliff, and they won't listen to us. We get a little glimpse of Paul's soft side. He's, he's a rough guy. As I mentioned earlier, he can be pretty uh, rough around the edges, but he's got a tender side to him as well. And he's saying to these Philippians, talking about these folks, that I've, wept, I've wept over them. I've wept over them. And so because of that, it suggests that they were at one point part of the church in Philippi. But when Paul says in verse 19, their end is destruction, it suggests they are unbelievers condemned to hell. Because... He can't say that about believers, that their end is destruction. So you can see kind of the theological quagmire here, or the, maybe a better word would be say, the hermeneutical quagmire, hermeneutics, the interpretation of Scripture. What, who's, what's this mean? Who's he talking about? I cannot recall any other reference, and I could be mistaken here, but I can't recall any other reference where Paul mentions weeping for false teachers. He usually just pretty ticked off at them. I don't see him, I can't recall any place in the New Testament where Paul says he cried for false teachers. Again, he just usually sees them as the bad guy and the enemy, and he goes at them guns blazing. So my hunch is that they were like the false teachers John mentions in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where John says about the false teachers he was addressing in his day, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So, so in other words, it's, a, it's another reminder that not every profession is a conversion. That there are unbelievers who look like believers in churches that will then leave a church and spread a false gospel. Well, that doesn't make things easy, does it? Because it could be one of your friends. It could be a relative. But this was something that was common back in those days, and it's still common today. There can be people within the church 
that are enemies of the cross. And it can be people that you love. So, some professing Christians, and that's key how I wrote that, they profess Christ. It doesn't mean they know Christ. They can be enemies of the faith. Jesus talked about this. He said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul talked about it in Acts chapter 20. Before he said goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he said, there will be wolves that come in and try to harm the flock, so be shepherds of the flock and protect it. Next, let's look at verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here's the third metaphor that Paul uses in this passage, and that is an ambassador. So we have an athlete, we have an apprentice, And now he uses ambassador language. So point number three in your outline, running to win requires living like an ambassador. You may remember me saying earlier in this series that Philippi was a Roman colony established in the region of Macedonia on the the far uh, eastern edge of the Roman Empire after the Battle of Philippi in 42 B.C., The emperor at that time, because he wanted to hang on to that territory on the far east, uh, decided to order soldiers and their families, his soldiers and their families, to settle there, to hang on and put uh, stakes down. And then he also sent some additional citizens from Rome out to Philippi to make their home. But in order to motivate them or incentivize this, the emperor uh, offered Roman citizenship to those who would settle in Philippi. This is something that he did not do for any other colony. Having Roman citizenship in this new city of Philippi uh, meant that they would have the same privileges as though they were living on Italian soil. It was huge back in that day. Uh, Among the privileges were the right to self-government, freedom from taxation, and a legal status equivalent to Rome. As a result of this, because Philippi was different than any other colony, they were, shall I say, special. They were proud of their Roman citizenship and privileges. And because they were proud of it, Paul brings it up a couple chapters ago, and he brings it up again here in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. There's more going on in this verse, friends, than meets the eye. This is often quoted, this often quoted verse uh, is actually the Apostle Paul delivering kind of an undercut rebuke or an indirect rebuke to the Philippians' patriotic pride. The first thing we should notice is that this declaration was inclusive. Notice he says, our citizenship. 
It doesn't say your, our. Now, that's important because Paul himself was a Roman citizen. In fact, he leveraged his Roman citizenship in order to get a hearing before Caesar, uh, which is why he was under house arrest. He was able to appeal to Caesar to get transferred to Rome. So Paul is not against asserting legal rights, especially if it's for the sake of the gospel. But what he is against, and I think what he's getting at here with the Philippians, he's against idol worship cloaked in unbridled patriotism. An idol is anything that we love more than Jesus that we're willing to sin in order to get or in order to protect. Now, before you guys start lighting your unused fireworks from the 4th of July and tossing them up my way, allow me to explain what God's Word has to say about patriotism. I'm just kind of going to do a flyby, kind of a Top Gun flyby, if you might. So, first, the obvious. God is not an American, nor is he Republican, Democrat, or Independent. Nor does his word state that he favors our country more than any other. World history shows us that throughout the passage of time, empires rise and empires fall. The scriptures tell us it is the Lord who causes this, actually. Now, the United States may be called a superpower, but it is simply another empire that the Lord has allowed or caused to rise, and he will, in his due time, allow or cause it to fall. And if you think in terms of history, the age of our country is actually not that old, given how long other empires like the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire were around. This is one reason why I think Paul was reminding the Philippians to keep their patriotism in check. You see, eventually the Roman Empire fell. It didn't last forever. And neither did the empires before it. And there is no promise in the scriptures that our empire, which we enjoy being, a, we enjoy being on the American team, it's good to be an American, to have the best military in the world and one of the best types of government. We like that. If we were living somewhere else in the world where we didn't have all those benefits, we would probably think differently about America. But like the Philippians, we need to make sure that we keep our patriotism in check. Like them, we should be citizens of heaven first and American second. Now, is it okay to celebrate our freedom? Yeah, absolutely. Is it okay to pray for our leaders? Yep, absolutely. Is it okay to vote, influence the culture, 
engage in dialogue over political issues that God's word speaks to, to fly the flag? Yep. Is it okay to honor soldiers that have sacrificed for our country? Yeah, absolutely. Scriptures would, would all support that. But I don't think the Lord is pleased when we let who's in the White House dictate our emotions because we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. And I don't think the Lord's okay when we, we sort of idolize our favorite politician as though they're going to make the world a better place and solve all of our problems when they don't have the power to do that. Only Jesus does. And he solved the biggest problem we have, which is our sin problem. And I don't think the Lord's pleased when we're more passionate about politics than we are the gospel. And the, only way, the way you can tell whether you're more passionate about politics or the gospel or more passionate about grandkids than you are the gospel is just to see what you talk about most. Because humans have been wired by God to talk about what they love most. Whatever oozes out of us is what we love the most. So if your social media feed is filled up with comments about politics and arguing with people, then you love politics more than you love Jesus if Jesus isn't showing up in your social media feed. I don't think the Lord's also, I don't think he's pleased when we tolerate sin, but we don't tolerate those who have different ideas than us that are not, that don't contradict Scripture. Or when we allow our patriotism to take the spotlight off of Jesus in our worship service. That will never happen here so long as I'm pastor, but I have to tell you, I cringe when I see some other churches around the country, and I won't name any, but there's one particular church I'm thinking of that's well-known. Their pastor's on TV a lot, uh, and speaking for the Republicans, and he's a fan of our president. Um, they, they last year had fireworks going off in their worship center, red, white, and blue fireworks, celebrating Independence Day weekend in the worship service. And I'm thinking, are we, are we, are we worshiping America or are we worshiping Jesus here? That's too far, I think. I think the Lord has an issue with that. There are other times outside of the worship service where it's okay to celebrate the country but to take time that's supposed to go to Jesus to do that? Again, I can, I can hear some of the wicks being lit right now. Uh, firecrackers and bottle rockets and Roman candles coming my way. But here's another one while you're at it. Um, I think the Lord is not pleased when we talk about our country and politics more than Jesus in our conversations. Because we're talking about things that are temporal, not spiritual, and they're not eternal. Is it okay to talk about them? Yeah, some. But, but how, how much? Is, it, is, it, is that all you talk about? Or does Jesus ever come up? So, so how can we know when our patriotism has gone too far? And I really wrestled with this late last night because I knew you would want to know. What are you getting at? Can I do this? Can I do that? What are you just saying? I don't like what you're saying. You're anti-American, Pastor Kerry. No. Here's, here's if I would boil it all down. I'd boil it down to these two points. When our faith in Christ is dependent on whether our nation rises or falls, 
we are idolatrous. Do you realize that there are believers in World War I, World War II, that had to, I mean, they, they came to the, the, the crossing the road, the crossroads of, you know, think about the believers that were in France or, uh, you know, Western Europe that got conquered by the Nazis. What happened to their pride, their patriotism, when the identity of their country just all of a sudden disappeared? Well, I tell you, that's when you have to decide, is my citizenship in heaven or is it not? So what if America gets conquered 10 years from now and everything that we've been used to knowing and seeing is gone? Will you still walk with Jesus? Will you still love the Lord? Can, will you still live for Christ even if everything around us changes? Language, culture, flag colors. Here's the next point. I think our patriotism has gone too far when we love our country more than we long for heaven. When we love our country more than we long for heaven. It's because heaven's where Jesus is at. So what's the solution? I think Christ followers are called to live as ambassadors here on earth. An ambassador represents the interest of his homeland, which is supposed to be heaven if you're a Christ follower, while living in a different culture and country, which would be here on earth. They live amongst the nationals. They learn the language and the customs that, so they can carry out their mission. But ambassadors never become part of the country where they are stationed. They always remain distinct. They live on the embassy grounds. They may go out and venture and meet with leaders of that country, that nation, and mix with the people, but at the end of the day, they come back home to the embassy. They always maintain their true identity and their distinctiveness. Paul further explains, look at your Bible uh, one last time here in, in verse 20 and 21, why this is so important and so worth it. He says, he says, for we await a Savior. Are you awaiting the return of Christ? Are you looking forward to the return of Jesus more than the next presidential election? Are you looking forward to the return of Jesus more than seeing the country go back to what it used to be when you were a kid growing up? See, these are the hard questions we have to wrestle with when it comes to a patriotism. And then he says in verse 21, who, by the way, not only is Jesus going to come back, oh, don't miss the fact that he's going to transform your lowly body, just falling apart because of the fall. Anybody got a body that's falling apart? I do. Okay, he's going to transform it to be like his glorious body, which was never affected by the fall, by the same power that enables him to subject all things to himself, meaning the same power that allows him to make all kingdoms and kings and fish in the sea and whales and all everything on earth and in the entire universe submit to him, 
He's going to use that same power to transform your lowly, despicable, frail, made-from-dust body that has no warranty and no receipt for you to return it. He's going to transform it. It's a reference to the resurrection of the believer. So Paul's just kind of heaping on. You know why you need to remember that your citizenship is in heaven? Here's why it's better than being a Roman citizen. First of all, you're awaiting a savior. He's coming back to get you. Oh, by the way, he's going to transform your lowly body. And then you're going to be with him forever. Rome can't do that for you. And neither can America. So how do we apply these truths? Here's two that come to mind. First of all, discipline yourself like an athlete. Well, that's not easy. You know? Discipline's not. Because discipline is choosing to do what you should do instead of what you feel like doing. Elite athletes know that in order to win on the playing field, they have to establish goals. They have to say yes to anything that helps them reach those goals, and they have to say no to anything that would hinder them getting those goals accomplished. And so elite athletes carefully choose what goes into their body, how much they sleep, they track their calories, they, how they use their time, and they avoid anything that could inhibit their peak performance. Such athletes are willing to exercise such discipline because they have decided the sacrifices are necessary in order to win. In the same way, godly Christ followers avoid anything that might hurt their relationship with the Lord. And they, they avoid anything that might trip them up or hinder them as they run the race to win the prize, to quote Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. They, they feed their soul, speaking of athletic nutrition, they feed their soul on a steady diet of God's word so they could finish the race well. A.W. Tozer summed up the kind of ruthless discipline the Christian race requires when he wrote this, whatever keeps me from my Bible is my enemy, however harmless it may appear. If your kids keep you from your Bible, they are at least for 30 minutes your enemy. <laughs> Set boundaries or get up earlier before they do. If, if, if Netflix or the Internet or social media, this is one of the reasons why I don't do my devotions on my phone because I am easily distracted by alerts and notifications. I had to put that thing aside, shut it off, put it in do not disturb mode. And I'm old-fashioned, using an old-fashioned Bible like this one right here, because my phone becomes my enemy during my devotion time. So are there any enemies or obstacles that are hindering your relationship with the Lord that you need to remove? What are the enemies that you maybe need to confront? Maybe it's going to bed earlier so you can get up earlier. Number two, make your homeland proud. Just like Olympic athletes represent their homeland 
And they go with a sense of pride to the Olympics, wanting to do well, knowing they've got a, a country back, back home that is watching them and cheering for them. We, too, should run the race of our faith in such a way that it makes heaven proud to call us their own. The author of Hebrews reminded us of this when he wrote in Hebrews 12.1. Oh, here's more athletic Olympic language. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it's referring to all the believers in heaven that are watching us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So make your homeland proud. Well, in the 1992, in 1992, excuse me, the world was indelibly marked by something they saw in Barcelona, Spain during the Summer Olympics. It wasn't how a particular athlete won his race, but rather how he finished that touched millions of hearts. When British sprinter Derek Redmond took his place on the starting block for the 400-meter final, he had every reason to be dreaming of gold because he was expected to win. He was a favorite. Seven years earlier, Redmond had broken the British world record for the 400-meter race. In 1986, he won gold on the 4 by 400-meter relay team at both the European Championships and the Commonwealth Games. He had quickly become a rising star in his sport, and despite his early success, Redmond was no stranger to pain or setbacks. Injuries, for example, had forced him to withdraw from the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. And injuries required him to have eight surgeries before 1992 in Barcelona. However, Redmond's unquestioned mental toughness brought him back to the track every time. Although he was at his peak, the peak of his career, and an experienced racer, by the time he reached Barcelona, something happened that even he could not foresee. Redmond exploded out of the starting line, starting block, rounded the first bend, and then tore his hamstring. The pain was so paralyzing that he fell to the ground holding the back of his leg, and if you've ever torn a hamstring, it is brutally painful. He's laying on the track in agony, but he doesn't want to be carried off by paramedics before the world as they watch on TV. And Redmond remembered where he was and how long it took him to get there, so he lifted his body off the track and he began limping towards the finish line because he just wanted to finish the race, even though winning was now out of the question for him. A few seconds later, a fan pushed his way past security guards onto the track and started running after Redmond. And when the hobbled runner heard the fan catch up to him, he realized that it was none other than his father. 
Redmond's father told his son to stop, but when Derek yelled back that he wanted to finish the race, his father said, well then, we're going to finish it together. And so his father helped carry him across the finish line. It's listed on several websites as one of the most inspiring, touching stories in Olympic history. Dear loved ones, I just want to remind you today that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have a Heavenly Father who is not only cheering for you to finish your race, He also promises to help you cross the finish line. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Father, we've been reminded this morning from your word that the Christian life is a race. And it's one that's been won for us so long as we finish. Lord, this partnership between us and you is mysterious. And we admit we don't understand it. How much of it depends on us and how much of it depends on you. So, Lord... We just want to throw ourselves at your feet and just call upon your grace and mercy and just admit we are too weak in our own strength to, to, to make it. We need you. Lord, I, I just want to pray for those that are here this morning who are weary. They've been, as William Carey, the missionary, once said, they've been plodding along limping. They're trying to finish. They need you. They need you to strengthen them. They need you to carry them, Lord, or to heal them so they can resume a full sprint. Father, I also just want to pray for those who, who maybe have become apathetic and stopped running. They Maybe like Paul was trying to address some of the Philippians who had become spiritually lazy. Lord, please, would you, would you just work in the lives of anyone here who's in that place and help them regain their fire, their passion, and work all things for good in their lives so that they can start running again. And finally, Lord, if there's anyone here or listening online who is not in the race yet because they don't know your son, please, Lord, would you, would you reveal Jesus to them? Would you show them that you have a better life, forgiveness, grace, and peace, and mercy to offer through a personal relationship with your son? Would you show them their sinfulness, Lord, and would you show them also just how merciful you are and bring them into that relationship? We love you and we thank you again for using Paul, and we thank you, Lord, again for the many runners that did not quit but have passed on the gospel from generation to generation so we could benefit from it today. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.